1: Welcome to
0: Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And you know, guys, it has been a while since I have done a deep dive on the history of a tech company. And that's partly because I've covered, you know, a lot of tech companies on this show. And when I think, I should do a series about such and such a company. I'll then go and do a quick search and discover that, you know, I already did that. And that's the challenge of having a tech podcast that has more than 1,200 episodes in the archives is that often I have already covered things that I thought I should cover. But one company I have never done a full rundown on is Panasonic, Now, I've talked about Panasonic and other shows, particularly ones about stuff like televisions, but I've never really sat down to research the company's history, so we're fixing that today. Now, for me, when I think Panasonic, I often think about CES, you know, the Consumer Electronics Showcase. And that's because whenever I attended CES, Panasonic was one of the companies that always had a very large, impressive presence there. Panasonic traditionally has a long and comparatively narrow space in the central hall at CES. Uh, That would be the central hall of the Las Vegas Convention Center, which has three massive exhibition halls, north, central, and south. Now, when I say it had a narrow space, I just mean that really the space was longer than it was wide, right? It wasn't a square, it was more of a rectangle, Now, the Central Hall typically has a few other heavy hitters in that space as well, in that general exhibition space. Sony has a booth in the Central Hall, Samsung and LG, among others. Panasonic often has a spectacular stage area. It's just, it's one of those booths that really grabs your attention as soon as it comes into your view. But I had no idea how old the company was or what sort of things led to it becoming a major player in the electronics space. The company's story actually stretches back more than a century, though the company has only officially gone by the name Panasonic since 2008. Before that, it was known as the Matsushita Electric Industrial Company, and it all begins with a guy named Konosuke Matsushita and his business of producing attachment plugs. You know, we all have humble beginnings, I suppose, or most of us. Konosuke was born in 1894 in Japan, back when Japan was still an empire, and his family was fairly well-off. At least, initially, it was. Konosuke was the youngest of eight siblings. His father was a landowner and one of the more influential members of the small community where the family lived, but his father invested poorly, and he lost much of the family's wealth due to speculation gone wrong a theme we find quite often in the world of technology, but that's another story. The family moved into a nearby city in a small house. And when Konosuke was about to graduate elementary school, or or the equivalent to elementary school, his family apprenticed him to a hibachi store in Osaka which required him to leave his family behind. He actually had to get on a train and travel to Osaka to work there. He cleaned the shop and he would clean the hibachi and he was also in charge of looking after the shop owner's children. But the hibachi shop wasn't long for this world and it went out of business. Konosuke was able to find new apprenticeships uh, with a store that sold an exotic new import from the UK, bicycles. Now, it was during this apprenticeship that Konosuke learned how to use metalworking tools and stuff like lathes. Konosuke became interested in using tools to craft things, and he spent five years in his apprenticeship. He considered actually leaving the apprenticeship in order to further his education, but he actually got some advice from his father. His father said, hey, you know what? Don't worry about education so much stick to this. You're learning a lot. You're learning about how to use these tools. You're learning the craft. You're learning about business. Skip the education. You're getting the education you need where you are. What you should do is just study this until you can have your own business. Then you can hire people who have an education. And I kind of dig that story. It has a charm to it. And it also kind of falls in line with so many other entrepreneurs who either didn't finish or never even started further education and instead focused on their businesses. It's another one of those themes we see in tech. Now, that being said, dropping out of school is not exactly a surefire way to go into, you know, a successful business. A lot of other factors have to come into play as well, but it is something that we've seen a lot of in the tech sphere. In 1910, Konosuke joined the Osaka Electric Light Company he was 15 years old. And electricity was just coming to Japan, and Konosuke was fascinated by it. He was kind of thrown into the deep end pretty early on. His first really big job was to work on wiring up a theater in Osaka. And this was an enormous undertaking. I mean, you're installing wires in a very large building that has never had electricity. Uh, The whole project ended up taking half a year. Konosuke became... A bit of a taskmaster, according to the official Panasonic history, he led his team, at age 15, no less, to work very long hours in order to get this job done. And that effort took its toll on him. Konosuke's immune system was weakened, probably from all the exhaustion, and he actually contracted pneumonia. But fortunately, he did recover. By the time he was 22, Konosuke was married and had risen to the highest level he could at Osaka Light Company in his in his uh, division. That was a, a a rank of inspector. That was the name of the job title. Uh, in his spare time, he developed an improved electrical socket, and he attempted to convince his boss that this would be a really great investment. It would be a great product. People would want it. He they'd be able to make a bunch and sell a bunch. But his boss wasn't convinced, and so on June 15th, 1917, he left his secure job at the Osaka Light Company to start his own manufacturing company. And he did this despite having next to nothing in savings. His workshop, which is being generous, was out of his own small home that he was renting. Now, in a lot of stories about startups, I talk about how founders got started out of a garage. That's another kind of common thread, but this is even more humble than that. Konosuke's home had dirt floors, and he had convinced two other Osaka Electric Light Company co-workers to join him in his business, and then his wife's brother also signed on. But the odds were stacked against Konosuke, and by the end of 1917, poor sales convinced his two former co-workers from Osaka uh, Electric Light Company to just jump ship. That left the business to Konosuke, his wife, and his brother-in-law. And things were pretty grim. But then the company received a giant order. 1,000 insulator plates for electric fans, and they were kept afloat. Konosuke took that money and immediately put it to work. He decided to rent out a two-story home and move everything in there uh, with the workshop downstairs. It was quite the upgrade from the small place he had rented with his wife. And he also created a new company called Matsushita Electric Devices Manufacturing Works. This was in 1918. And it was this company that would eventually, over the course of a hundred years, essentially, evolve into Panasonic. And so the company traces its history officially to 1918. 1918 is also the year that the First World War would come to an end. Japan had played an important part in World War I, the Empire of Japan supported the Allied forces, and the young Japanese manufacturing industry had found an eager customer in European countries, which had a need for more material to support war efforts. Japan was undergoing a bit of an economic boom as a result, though this would have other consequences, but all that is outside the realm of this episode. My point here is that Japan's economic, social, and entrepreneurial situations were all evolving quickly. The rapid expansion created a challenge for Konosuke. Uh, Entrepreneurs were establishing new factories every single day, And those factories needed employees. And so while he was trying to grow his business and hire on new workers to fulfill bigger and bigger orders, it was also becoming difficult to hold on to those employees because new businesses would open up. They would offer more competitive wages to fill out their own workforces. And so employees would often shift from one job to the next. It reminds me a lot of the early days of the dot-com boom where people were jumping ship left and right from one company to the next, getting more stock options and all that kind of mess. Konosuke took some unusual steps to build employee loyalty and trust. He, including forming an internal work organization called Hoichikai, which means one-step society. He and his 27 employees were all members of this society, and they would engage in different recreational activities, such as sports, He would also teach anyone in his company who was interested that the trade secrets of how they made stuff, like insulating material, that was a trade secret of his company. And typically, companies at the time would keep that secret to maybe one or two special employees, but Konosuke wanted to build trust, so he shared it with anyone who was willing to learn. Konosuke also designed a two-way socket as well as an attachment plug and began to manufacture and sell them out of his shop, Electricity was becoming a more common utility in Japan, and Konosuke's products were in great demand. He had a reputation for selling reliable components at a reasonable price. By 1922, business had grown enough for Konosuke to commission a new factory and office, and he moved operations out of his own home for the first time. So now he was in an actual space he was renting specifically for it to be a manufacturing center, and he kept on hiring people this whole time, too. And he also expanded operations. He established a sales team in Tokyo so that he could get his products into more wholesalers. Unfortunately, in September 1923, Tokyo and the surrounding area, including the port of Yokohama, were devastated by a massive earthquake. And the, the destruction was almost total in certain parts of Tokyo. It was unprecedented. Konosuke's two sales representatives were unharmed, but they had nowhere to work anymore, so they returned to Osaka. It would take another year for the company to reestablish its sales presence in Tokyo. Meanwhile, back in Osaka, Konosuke designed a new product that took some effort to sell. Like many in Japan, Konosuke used a bicycle to get around. And he also worked really long hours. But he had a heck of a time riding his bicycle at night. The bike lamps at the time were mostly either oil lamps or they were candle lamps. These were not always reliable. They could snuff out in mid-ride. There were a few battery-operated lamps at the time, but they were generally thought of as being of poor quality, like not as good as oil or candles. And most of those battery-operated lamps could only light an electric lamp for three hours before you would have to replace the batteries, so they were seen as wasteful and impractical. Konosuke wanted to create an improved battery-powered bicycle lamp, so he got to work on it. Ultimately, he designed a lamp shaped kind of like a bullet, and it would hold three batteries, and it lit an electric bulb for up to 40 hours, between 30 and 40. He took his invention to wholesalers to try and convince them to order the lamp, but the reputation of battery-powered lamps in general was so poor that no one really gave them the time of day. They said, we can't sell these things anyway. Nobody wants them. So he decided to take a different approach. He went to bicycle shops, and he provided lamps to the owners to for free for them to, to try out, to test, and then to, to talk them up if they liked them. And they started to place orders directly with him through his company. So if they... Like the lamps, they would just order more from him. And then before long, the wholesaler said, Ooh, wait a minute. Maybe we were a little too hasty. So they came back around and started signing deals. So how does a battery operated lamp work? I mean, this is tech stuff after all. So I have to explain how a couple of pieces of tech work in the context of history, right? And this is a really simple thing. This is one of the easiest circuits to understand. So you've got your source of electricity. Uh, In this case, it's three batteries that are providing the electricity. And that also means that the current we're going to talk about is direct current, meaning the current is always flowing in the same direction. The circuit is essentially a one-way street, uh, as opposed to something like alternating current. Batteries have a negative terminal and a positive terminal. And that means that between the negative and the positive, not physically between in the battery itself, but rather the difference in that negative and positive means there's an electric potential between the two, or voltage. So if you were to attach a conductive path to those two terminals that would allow current to flow, then current will flow. And we describe current as moving from positive to negative, though you could talk about electricity as electrons flowing through a circuit and in that case, you're talking about negative to positive. So the flow of current is opposite the flow of electrons. Uh, that, thanks, Benjamin Franklin. Now, if there's nothing more than a connective path, you know, just like copper wire from one end of the battery to the other, the battery's going to heat up, current's going to flow, and then it'll just keep doing that until the battery goes dead when all the electrochemical processes inside the battery slow down because the active elements have all been used up. But that would make no sense. There'd be no point in doing that. You're just using up a battery. So we use batteries to do work. So we connect them to circuits and those circuits have a load on them. A load in a circuit is a component that consumes electric power, typically so that it'll do something, right? It's, It's a load that typically corresponds with some sort of action. Not necessarily. There are components and circuits that don't, you know, actively do anything, but it's a good rule of thumb. So, a light bulb is an electric load. Light bulbs use electricity to flow through a filament that has a fairly high electrical resistance. Uh, That means a resistance to electricity flowing through that substance. And the electricity wants to flow through the filament, it has to go through the filament if it wants to get to the other end of the circuit, and it really badly wants to do that because of that electric potential, that voltage. So the electricity, assuming that the voltage is high enough and the electrical resistance isn't too high, will just uh, hike up its metaphorical bridges and push through that filament despite the electrical resistance. But some of the electricity converts over into another form of energy, that of heat. And The filament heats up to the point that it incandesces or glows with a bright light. And I've talked a lot about incandescing in fairly recent episodes, so I won't do that again here. Now, one thing I did not see while I was researching these bicycle lamps was whether Konosuke had the batteries mounted in series or in parallel. Now, if I had to guess, I would say parallel because the two arrangements have different effects. There are different reasons why you would do this. Uh, Each battery has a particular voltage or electric potential between the two terminals. Uh, If you link batteries in series so that you have one right after the other, the, the positive terminal on battery A is against the negative terminal of battery B, and the positive terminal of battery B is against the negative terminal of battery C, then what you have managed to do is increase the overall voltage by using these three batteries in series. So, and that means you could do a job that requires more voltage, a harder job with three batteries in series than you would be able to do with a single battery. Now, if you mount batteries in parallel so that the terminals of the batteries are all connected to a common conductor. So all three positive ends are connected to the same conductor, all three negative ends are connected to the same conductor. You increase the capacity of the batteries, how long they can work before you need to replace them. You know, you can't do a harder job than one battery can, but you can do the same job a single battery can, but for longer. Konosuke had begun to create full electronic products branching out from the components he had been producing, and soon it would be off to the races. But before I get into that, let's take a quick break. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change.
1: Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com.
0: Konosuke's company signed an agreement with Yamamoto Trading Company to sell these bullet-shaped lamps under a brand name called Excel, very much like the spreadsheet program. Konosuke found the arrangement somewhat vexing as he had ideas on how they should market the lamp, but Yamamoto's president, uh, Takenobu Yamamoto, felt that the lamps were no more than a passing fad, and so he shut down those ideas. In 1927, when Konosuke was 32, he introduced a new type of bike lamp. Uh, This one was square in shape, and he called it the National Lamp. And National would become an important brand name within the company, not just for lamps, but for other products as well. Now, Yamamoto claimed that the marketing agreement they had put in place for the Excel lamp also applied to the national lamp. And he said, if you want to market this, that's fine. But you got to pay me 10,000 yen to get the marketing rights, because right now I hold those marketing rights. So Konosuke paid it off and the national brand would be under his control and he could market it the way he wanted to. The same year, he created a new division within his company to produce thermal products. uh, That is, electronics that produce a lot of heat, like electric irons for ironing clothes. Konosuke saw an opportunity in Japan. See, electric appliances at that time in Japan, were really a luxury. And therefore, they were also a very small market. Only a tiny slice of the overall population of Japan could even afford to buy them. Konosuke wanted to take aim at a larger market. He wanted to produce lower-cost appliances for people who weren't ludicrously wealthy. And the first product his company made with this goal in mind was the National Super Iron. Remember when I said the filaments in a light bulb generate heat due to electrical resistance and then they luminesce or incandesce, I should say? Well, an electric iron does a similar thing with heating coils. The coils have a high electrical resistance and they heat up as current passes through them. And the same thing is true for stuff like toasters and electric stovetops, or at least the type of electric stovetops that have the electric coils on them. With irons, the heat from the coil typically transfers to something like a base plate, and that's the actual surface you use to iron your wrinkled clothing. You wouldn't want to use the heating coils themselves. You'd probably end up scorching your clothes. Konosuke put a man named Tetsujiro Nakao in charge of the new electrothermal division, And the goal was to set up a mass manufacturing process in order to bring the cost of production down on a per-unit basis, which means they could market the super iron for less money than competing irons on the market. The danger was that the company could end up producing way more irons than the market would support. But Konosuke felt that if priced low enough, a lot of people in Japan would buy these. They just couldn't afford them as they currently stood. But this was a big risk. I mean, setting up a mass manufacturing facility is complicated and it is expensive. If it didn't pay off, his company would have been in a really tough position financially. The goal was to sell the irons for 3.2 yen. Now, that's a tiny amount, right? Except that at the time, the average starting salary for a teacher in Japan was 50 yen a year. So 3.2 was a significant amount. However, it was still lower than the competing products on the market. To be able to reach that price, his company was going to need to produce 10,000 irons per month. And at the time, Konosuke's company had kind of estimated that the demand for electric irons was capping out somewhere around 100,000 units in a year. So that would mean Konosuke's company would be producing more supply then the demand called for, $120,000 a year versus 100000 So this was risky, but the gamble paid off. The product was a market success, easily justifying the investment in the mass manufacturing process and serving as a model in Japanese business and manufacturing. By the end of 1927, the company was selling an electric foot warmer, which used some of the same technologies the company had in their irons, And uh, also, Nakao became the head of a research and development division, a new R&D division within the company, with the goal of working on new emerging technologies that could find their way into future products. In the early 1930s, radio was coming to Japan, but like other electronics, radio sets were really expensive. And this wasn't just in Japan. Radios were expensive everywhere and often they were enormous pieces of furniture because this was before the invention of the transistor, so they were using vacuum tubes as amplifiers. Konosuke's company developed a three-tube radio, and he entered the radio into a competition that was being held by the Tokyo Public Broadcasting System, and the radio set he entered took home first prize. Konosuke also did something Fairly remarkable, he purchased the rights to two radio patents. Now, that's not unusual. Companies do this all the time. So sometimes companies will, you know, file a patent and get awarded a patent. Sometimes companies will license patents. Sometimes companies will sell patents. And the patent can act just like any other piece of property. It'll pass from one person to the next. So even though Konosuke's company didn't come up with the patents themselves, by purchasing them... It was as if they were the ones who had written those patents in the first place. But here's the remarkable part of it. He then released those two patents to the public domain. Now, that is unusual. And he said that his goal was to encourage growth in the radio industry in Japan. And in many ways, this kind of harkens back to the days when Konosuke would supply bicycle shops with free lamps to help test and promote the technology. In 1932, Konosuke established the company's guiding principle, the one that would hold sway during his leadership. And it's kind of astonishing, particularly if we view it through the lens of a post-Jack Welch world of business. And of course, we should retain our ability to think critically and consider that this guiding principle might not always be applied, or it might only be applied at a, a surface or superficial level, But hey, I hear you saying, what the heck was this guiding principle? Well, I'm gonna quote Konosuke according to Panasonic's own history, and this is what he said. Quote, The mission of a manufacturer is to overcome poverty by producing an abundant supply of goods. Even though water can be considered a product, no one objects if a passerby drinks from a roadside tap. That is because the supply of water is plentiful and the price is low. Our mission as a manufacturer is to create material abundance by providing goods as plentifully and inexpensively as tap water. This is how we can banish poverty, bring happiness to people's lives, and make this world a better place. End quote. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, there's a pretty big gap in his philosophy and what we would see in business in general around the 1980s, the 1990s, and later with companies turning toward focusing on shareholder value above everything else. And again, I don't want to go so far as to claim that Panasonic has kept this idea as the central core component of its business practices, but I think, you know, that would be disingenuous. I I just, I dig the idea of using success in order to help others with the ultimate goal of banishing poverty. That's a great, goal. And that might be because I just watched so much Mr. Rogers when I was a kid. So whether or not the company succeeded in this or was sincere in this, I can't really speak to. But man, I do love that philosophy. Anyway, let's get back to the history. The company was growing more complex. And so in 1933, Konosuke formally organized his company into three branches, each capable of doing business as if it were a separate entity. One division oversaw batteries, uh, one oversaw radios, and the third oversaw electrothermal products. And each of those divisions had other stuff that they handled as well. But the goal was to make the head of each division have the authority and investment to make the right decisions for their particular branch. Konosuke recognized that his company as a whole had really grown quite large and too complex to handle as if it were a single, unified entity. Because a decision that might be great for one part of the company might be a setback for another, so this gave more flexibility to things. Now, that July, the company expanded into a new factory northeast of Osaka, uh, had a lot more employees at this point, and it was producing more than 200 different products, and growing in importance in the Japanese economy. In 1934, Konosuke oversaw the opening of an employee training institute. Japanese students could go there and attend a three-year course where they would learn and practice skills in business and engineering. The company also obviously would benefit from this relationship as well. Uh, In fact, it could be a very effective recruiting program for promising students to be brought into the workforce full-time. Now, what came as a surprise to me was to learn that it wasn't until 1935, which was 17 years after Konosuke founded his company, that he actually incorporated it. It became Matsushita Electric Industrial Company Limited. He also began to develop overseas markets, which was a bit of a novelty in Japan, particularly in the electronics manufacturing sector. Konosuke hoped to expand sales to countries around the world. But if you're keeping track of the years, you realize we're getting up to some years where there were some major conflicts that would really throw a whole monkey wrench into that plan. So Japan and China went to war in July 1937. That whole story is incredibly complicated and is outside the scope of tech stuff. But the following year, Matsushita's R&D division produced the company's first television set prototype with a 12-inch screen. In 1939, the set was able to display broadcasts that were originating from the Tokyo Broadcast Center, and the company also showed off this set to the general public at a special innovation exhibition. Uh, There were high hopes that television would play a huge part in the following years, but That also got sidelined because in 1940, Japan entered the larger conflict of World War II. And the United States would impose sanctions on Japan as a result of that, severely restricting Japan's access to steel. Kunosuke was concerned that this restricted access to raw materials would have a negative impact on the products that his company was manufacturing, and he actually spoke quite passionately to his employees that they make sure that they don't compromise on quality. By 1941, Kanasuke was obligated to turn his company's capabilities toward fulfilling military contracts. I don't know what Kanasuke's opinion was of Japan's stance in World War II. It's kind of irrelevant because whether he chose eagerly to fulfill military contracts or he was actually compelled to by the government, the outcome is the same. The company Matsushita began to build stuff for the Japanese military. In fact, they founded two new companies to do this, the Matsushita Shipbuilding Company and the Matsushita Airplane Company, and they built wooden ships and wooden planes, like three planes and a couple of dozen ships. Now, to say that the war was disruptive would be an understatement. It was certainly disruptive for Matsushita. The company had never made this kind of stuff before. They were not familiar with it. They had to create all new processes and facilities to do it. They had to train in new skills to do it. And it took a lot of their focus off of the things that the company had been doing as their prime business. By the end of World War II, upon Japan's surrender... The company had lost 32 factories and offices, mostly in Osaka and Tokyo. Their home office was unscathed. The prime office in Osaka was still untouched. The company's employees, uh, at a peak during World War II, reached 26,000. But then thousands of those employees left after Japan surrendered. Most of them uh, had who had left were drafted into working for the company um, as part of the war effort, and then some uh, actual uh, Matsushita employees also resigned. Making matters worse, Matsushita, like a lot of Japanese companies, was deeply in debt after the war. The company, again, you know, they had been forced to really produce military vehicles. If they had been able to choose, I'm sure they wouldn't have gone that route they had never done it before it was a very expensive thing for them to have to try and switch over to and they were counting on the government to you know compensate them for it but then they were on the losing side and the government didn't exist anymore so now with the japanese government defunct there was no one to pay those expenses the company had to shoulder it itself and Matsushita had been forced to expand and then shoulder all that debt, and the company tried to pivot a little bit. They began to manufacture stuff like prefabricated wooden houses and even wooden wagon wheels, because they had all this infrastructure to produce wooden stuff. But there was no need to produce military vehicles. In fact, they wouldn't be allowed to. The day after Japan's surrender, Konosuke held a meeting and said that the company was going to get back into producing consumer products, But there was a little thing standing in the way, and that would be the United States military. See, many of the businesses in Japan were ones that were under scrutiny from the U.S. government. A lot of them had been controlled by a single family for multiple generations, and those families were holding on to these companies in a way as kind of establishing and holding on to power The U.S. forces directed those companies to kind of abandon that approach, to either break apart or to change leadership. And they identified Matsushita as one of those companies. And this really offended Konosuke, because he had founded the company himself. This was not a generational thing. He actually was the founder, and the company wasn't even 30 years old yet at this point. But Matsushita had built vehicles for the Japanese military during wartime, And so, the company had a really big target painted on it. As a result, the U.S. forces were demanding that Konosuke step down and for someone else to take control. Konosuke, however, had won his employees' loyalty. He had demonstrated his own commitment to them. He had helped them unionize, which is something that you don't typically see a business owner doing. And so the employees protested the directive, even as Konosuke prepared to step down so his company could survive. Uh, Several retail stores also joined in the protests because these stores were stores that carried the products the company made. Some of his other companies that or companies that had worked with Matsushita also ended up joining this protest. And so, faced with resistance and a demand that Konosuke was the driving force behind Matsushita, the U.S. government reversed their course. They decided that he did not need to step down. And it sounds like I'm talking about something that was a fairly fast process, but it wasn't. The demand he stepped down was issued in 1946. The reversal did not happen until the middle of 1947. And the push to designate the company as a family-controlled entity wouldn't be reversed until 1950. One person who left the company around this time was Konosuke's brother-in-law. He had been with the company since its founding, but he stepped down. uh, Some people say he stepped down as an effort to kind of take the pressure off of Konosuke. If he left, this brother-in-law, if he left, then everything maybe would be okay. But he went on to found a different manufacturing company called Sanyo. In the meantime, Matsushita saw several divisions and acquisitions removed from their company. And as we all know, this would not be the end of Panasonic. And when we come back, I'll talk about how the company went through the recovery process post-World War II. But first, let's take another quick break. Running a business is no cakewalk.
1: Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. You're probably careful with your personal information, but what about the other places that have it? Like the doctor's office that mixed up your files. They have your social security number. The power company that mistakenly cut your service has your payment info and last three addresses. And the hotel that lost your reservation has your passport info. Your information is in endless places out of your control. Any one of them could accidentally expose you to hackers and identity theft through lax security, breaches, or simple mistakes. But LifeLock monitors millions of data points every second and alerts you to a wide range of threats. If your identity is stolen, a U.S.-based restoration specialist will fix it. Guaranteed, or your money back with plans covering up to $3 million for stolen funds and expenses. Mistakes happen. Don't let not having protection be one of them. Save up to 40% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 40%. Terms apply.
0: The restrictions Matsushita was under post-World War II were pretty tough. The company was not allowed to borrow money. Uh, This was actually done kind of on a national level in Japan. It wasn't just singling out the company. It was all in an effort to kind of stave off inflation. But Matsushita also had to pay employees wages in installments. They couldn't just pay everybody in full every payday. There wasn't enough cash on hand to do that. On top of that, despite streamlining workflow and really just saving wherever they could save, The company was forced to operate factories for half days. They just couldn't afford to run them full time. By 1950, the company was employing 4,438 people, but in March of that year, 567 of those people would get laid off. However, something else happened that brought about a new period of productivity and prosperity in Japan. And I wish I could say that it was something to celebrate, but no, it's not. It's war again, but this time it's the Korean War. The Korean War started on June 25, 1950, when North Korean forces backed by the Soviet Union invaded South Korea. China would also side with North Korea and the United Nations and the United States would side with South Korea, and the Japanese economy rebounded. Demand in the region was calling for Japanese companies to ramp up production. In 1951, Konosuke decided to do a grand tour of the United States and also of Europe to learn how companies operated in other countries, to learn more about the electronics industry as a whole. He saw a need to become a global citizen and to expand his company's operations on a more grand scale. And after the first of two U.S. tours in 1951, Konosuke came back to his company and told his engineers about this cool thing he wanted them to make. He wanted them to build a washing machine. He had seen washing machines in the United States, and he felt that there'd be a good market for them in Japan. This turned out to actually be a pretty big request. It was something that the engineers had never really seen before, and they were depending upon materials that had been produced in other countries. So there was a language barrier when they were looking at the various manuals and descriptions of these things. And they sort of had to suss out how to build a washing machine. And not just the machine, but the components that would make up that machine. Stuff like various seals and switches and motors. However, eventually they did succeed. The company created an agitator washing machine called the MW-101, which could hold up to two kilograms of clothing, or about four and a half pounds or so. And my favorite bit about the washing machine story is that the quality assurance team was perplexed as to how to test these devices once they were finished. I mean, you know, you would throw a sullied cloth into them to see that it would actually come out clean, but the testers were upset because there was no standard dirty cloth they could rely upon. They didn't have a set dirty cloth that would be a reliable test and a completely consistent and repeatable test. So you just had to get a cloth and get it dirty. But, you know, what if one one cloth is too dirty or one wasn't dirty enough and you don't know if it really worked? It drove them nuts. The company also began to reestablish its sales network, which had been essentially wiped out after World War II. And initially they focused on building out the sales network in Japan itself, but the company would also play a big part in establishing a new effort to get an autonomous economy in Japan, and then expand beyond it. Kanasuke had another ambition upon his return from his tour, which was to find another company, an electronics company, that he could partner with to gain some technical guidance. So find someone who is already experienced in the sector and then partner with them to learn from them. Ultimately, after a lot of negotiations and back and forth, he chose the Dutch company Philips, which had started off selling light bulbs and at this point was already a large electronics company. Together, they formed a new subsidiary called Matsushita Electronics Corporation, or MEC, in 1952. Around that same time, Matsushita engineers also built a new black-and-white television set, the 17K531, under the national brand, this set had a rectangular screen, which kind of set it apart from other early television sets in Japan. Most of them had circular stri- screens, which was you know, weird to us now, the r- rectangle being the more common <laughs> appearance. And it was technically a new product, but it was also extremely expensive. So it wasn't like they were selling a ton of these. Not a lot of people could afford it. In 1953, uh, Matsushita established the Central Research Laboratories. This was a dedicated R&D facility that took what engineers were learning through their partnership with Philips and then putting it to practical use. And the group developed new products as well as worked on ways to automate production to make the manufacturing process more safe and efficient and cheap. And this wasn't just for the sake of innovation. Toward the end of 1953, the Japanese economy was showing signs of slowing down a lot, and Konosuke saw a need to create more efficient production systems in order to stay a viable business without massive cutbacks. The company also began to develop dry cell batteries starting in 1954. They introduced the Hyper brand, but that kind of begs the question, what the heck is a dry cell battery? And yes, I know. I technically used begs the question wrong. Well, remember that a battery is a way to store energy. And the way it releases energy is to have chemical reactions that go on inside the battery. And part of that chemical reaction means that it converts some of that stored chemical energy into electrical energy. And in the early days of batteries, batteries were wet cells. And that means the batteries themselves had liquid components inside them. And sometimes they could slosh out if you weren't careful. And sometimes those components are toxic or corrosive, like sulfuric acid type stuff. You don't want that to get on you. That's a bad thing. But a German chemist named Dr. Karl Gassner created the first dry cell battery, which uses dry components rather than liquid ones. And this was all the way back in 1886. However, producing them in large quantities wasn't easy at first. Originally, Konosuke was looking to partner with an American company to develop dry cell batteries for Matsushita, but ultimately he decided against that, and the company's own engineers developed their version of the dry cell battery. And in general, these are safer and more convenient than wet cell-style batteries. Like, with a wet cell battery, you can't just mount the battery any which way, right? Because if you turn it upside down, the liquid can come out. Whereas a dry cell battery... It doesn't matter the orientation of the battery. It's gonna, you know, all the components are just gonna stay where they're at, so it's better in that regard. The company also produced its first electric refrigerator, the NR341. So let's remind ourselves how electric fridges work. It's tech stuff after all. And we're about to wrap up. Don't worry. So in the very old days, you had an icebox. And that was literal. You had a box and it had a compartment where you would put a big old block of ice. And that would keep the neighboring compartment cool. But it wasn't exactly convenient, and you had to replace the ice regularly. So, how does something running on electricity keep things cool? It has to do with physics. And those physics rely on a compressor, and a valve, and some heat exchange coils. But that doesn't really explain things, does it? Alright, so let's imagine this. You've got a continuous path. You've got a compressor on one end of that path and you have an expansion valve on the opposite end of the path and on either side. So think of those as top and bottom. Let's say that the compressor's at the top, the expansion valve's at the bottom, and then you've got a coil on your left and a coil on your right. And we'll say the coil on your left is the one that represents the coil that's inside a refrigerator and the coil on the right is one that represents the coil that's outside the refrigerator. Both of these are called heat exchange coils. The one that's on the outside is also known as the condenser. So, ultimately the whole idea is to transfer heat from the inside of the fridge and dump it on the outside of the fridge. The compressor's job is to circulate the refrigerant through the system and to compress it. The refrigerant is made of something that has a really low boiling point, like below the freezing point for water. So this is something that we would typically encounter as a gas, but uh, you want to get it low enough so that you can actually turn it into a liquid. The compressor pumps gas from the fridge side, the cold side, and it compresses that gas, right, And, and pressurizes it. And this also causes the gas to heat up. As you pressurize a gas, its temperature increases. And this hot refrigerant gas then moves into the heat exchange coil on the outside of the fridge. And that's where the heat will dissipate. Typically, it transmits the heat to a series of thin fins. And then the heat just uh, dissipates into the environment. The gas inside the coil starts to condense, and it condenses into a liquid that's still held under high pressure. The pressure allows the refrigerant to stay a liquid even though it would normally boil off into a gas because it's still warmer than what its typical boiling point would be. The refrigerant then will flow through the expansion valve, and that maintains the difference in pressure between the condenser side, which is, again, high pressure, that's where the compressor is pumping refrigerant into, and then low pressure on the fridge side. So on the other side of the expansion valve is that low pressure coil. And when the high pressure liquid passes through the expansion valve, it immediately boils off. And as it boils off, the temperature drops drastically. Uh, It drops down to whatever the boiling temperature is for that refrigerant. So since the boiling temperature is below zero, that means the coils go to below zero. And then that cold refrigerant can start to absorb the heat from inside the fridge again, carrying the heat from the food that's in the fridge away. And the whole process starts up again. Matsushita's fridge was part of the national line of products, and it was an expensive appliance. In fact, the company itself described it as, quote, "...highly acclaimed by people in high-income households." End quote By 1954, Matsushita was starting to market radios to the United States, which was a big step for the Japanese company. The radio market in the U.S. was already a mature one. On top of that, American consumers weren't really familiar with Japanese brands that much. Japan had not gained a reputation for electronics in the U.S. in the 1950s. It was going to be a really tough battle. And you know, we haven't even reached the point where Matsushita introduced Panasonic as a brand name but we gotta save some stuff for the next episode, right? And so in our next episode, we will continue the story of Panasonic, including the introduction of the Panasonic brand and leading up to what the company has done in more recent decades. But in the meantime, if you have suggestions for future topics of tech stuff, whether it's a company, a technology, a person in tech, a trend in tech, anything like that, let me know. Reach out to me on Twitter. The handle is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again
1: Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a
0: year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.
1: You wouldn't expect to hear that we're America's third best city for beer like this one. Or home to vibes like this. And this. It might surprise you that we're top 10 for immersive art that's like... Whoa. And...